to free slaves from the captives, from, from ta being taken away from Latin America and South America and North America. But there's this, uh, this is quick, I'm going to read this um, uh, introduction in the chapter, uh, The De-Westernalization de of Knowledge. And in the introduction he says, Many challenges have arisen in the midst of man's confusion throughout the ages, but none perhaps more serious and destructive to a man than today's challenges posed by Western civilization. I venture to maintain that the greatest challenge that certainly arisen in our age in the challenge of knowledge, indeed not as against ignorance, but knowledge as conceived and disseminated throughout the, West, throughout the world by Western civilization. Knowledge whose nature has become problematic because it has lost its true purpose due to being unjustly conceived, and has thus brought about chaos in man's life instead of, and rather than, peace and justice. Knowledge which pretends to be real, but which is a product productive of confusion and scepticism, which has elevated doubt and conjecture to the scientific rank in the methodology, and which regards doubt as an imminently valid epistemological tool in the pursuit of truth. Knowledge which has, for the first time in history, brought chaos in the three kingdoms of nature. And the three kingdoms of nature, the animal, the vegetal, and the mineral. It, means to me, it, me, it seems to me that important to emphasize that knowledge is not neutral, and can indeed be infused with a nature and content which masquerades as knowledge. Yet is in fact taken as a whole not true knowledge, but its, its interpretation through the prism through the prism, as it were, the worldview, the intellectual vision, and the psychological perception of the civilization that now plays a key role in its formulation and dissemination. And I think Habib's role in, 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 this, in this critical juncture of history is, is, is breaking this kind of dissemination of corrupt knowledge and bringing forth true historical accounts of what really has happened. And inshallah, with a very, very brief bio of Habib, um, and I don't want to embarrass him further, I'll, I'll pass it over to him. But uh, a very brief bio of Habib Kande, born in London, England. Habib graduated from Kingston University with a first class BA with honours degree in business and film studies. After his graduation, Habib travelled to Cairo, Egypt, to in pursuit of studying traditional Islamic sciences. A student of the Manipur School of Jurisprudence, Habib studied Arabic, Islamic law, and Islamic history at Al Azhar School and University. MashaAllah brother, I hand it over to you. Shukran. <coughs> Asalaamu Alaikum. Asalaamu <coughs> Okay, thank you. Um, first, I want to thank Brother Ahmed for inviting me and everyone from IHRC um, for hosting this particular event, this book launch of my um, latest book, Illuminating the Blackness, Blacks and African Muslims in Brazil. And I want to thank each and every one of you for coming. Um, MashaAllah everyone is colourfully dressed and uh, looks you know, very vibrant. I was telling uh, a couple of the other brothers who were thinking of coming that they should come not only just to kind of obviously hopefully inshallah benefit from the talk and the presentation but to see which I thought would be the case um, some representatives of the Nigerian Muslim community which we can see in full effect uh, today. What I'd like to do for this particular presentation I don't want to because I came for, for the benefit of those who were here in was it October that I came 2015 because I came in October 2015 to give a talk about this particular topic. So I don't really want to go over the same thing, which the same material which I covered in October. But what I'll do, I'll talk about why I wrote this book um, and some of my thoughts in terms of why I was writing the book and what my aim is in terms of trying to write this book. 
and some of my recent trips to um, Brazil. I've been fortunate enough since October 2015, I've been fortunate enough to travel to um, Brazil a couple of times. So I want to talk about that and talk about some of my, um, what I found in terms of the Muslim community in Brazil. And not only to talk about the Muslim community and the history of Islam in Brazil, I want to talk about things pertaining to the Muslim community which is similar to the Muslim community in London, or in England for that matter. We know obviously the Muslim community is multicultural, we are the minority, likewise in Brazil, and there's things that we can draw inspiration from and parallels from, so I want to kind of talk about that. So I've got a presentation, so fortunate enough for you, you don't have to look at me for, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes. So I've got a number of pictures I'm going to talk about, again, some of the stuff that I've seen in Brazil, and I will use that in terms of part of my presentation. So if we can uh, go to the first slide. I just want to give a quick overview of what the book is about. Okay, the book is uh, it's called Illuminating the Blackness, Blacks and African Muslims in Brazil. The book is split into two parts. Part one deals with the issue of anti-black racism in Brazil. I mean, for those of you who are not aware, um, Brazil, as we know, is a multicultural society. And one of the things which the media likes to propagate is that Brazil, there's no racism in Brazil. And you might have heard the idea that it's a racial democracy because you see people of different races, um, skin complexions and, and the like. But what is something which is not really reported, but unfortunately, within the last, maybe you could say, 20, 30 years, a lot of black people, Brazilians of African descent, are talking about the injustices that they're facing because there's a lot of discrimination towards Brazilians of African descent. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, so the first part of the book, like I said, deals with the, issue of the history of anti-black racism in Brazil, how this came about from, the, from obviously from slavery, obviously to recent times, and what, not only again to talk about the, the, history, the history of anti-black racism, but more importantly to talk about the response of Afro-Brazilians. So I want to look at the resistance, how the Afro-Brazilians are resisting and combating racism. They're doing it in different forms um, in terms of the, um, challenging racism, whether it's by education, uh, writing books, doing documentaries, or just actually trying to challenge the issue of um, the systematic racism, which unfortunately many of them suffer. So I'll, I'll kind of talk about that in the second part of the book. I mean, the first part of the book. The second part of the book talks about the, ish, um, the contributions of African Muslims in Brazil. I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, in my um, presentation, but that's what the second part of the book is, and I'm talking about the history of Islam in Brazil. So if we can go to, actually before, I want to, again, before I get into the actual talk itself, I want to talk about why I wrote the book on, and some of my motivations and how it came about. Um, as Brother Ahmed mentioned, my first book uh, was called Illuminating the Darkness. Um, I, I published this book 2012, I think, yeah, about four years ago. And this book was about the issue of anti-black racism within um, Muslim communities. Um, again, similar to, the, and the reason why this ties into this book, because some people might be thinking, the first book you're talking about, Islam and Islamic history and African history of racism. Now you're talking about Brazil, what's the connection? The connection is that the, the issue of anti-black racism, for whatever reason, again, we know in Islam, there's no such thing as racism, racism doesn't exist. But unfortunately, within a lot of Muslim communities, there is this idea that people of African descent and black people are seen as somewhat inferior, which is that something that I wanted to kind of talk about. And the reason why I wanted to talk about that was because unfortunately, I, a number of black people, a number of people of African descent have some misconception about Islam, that it's an Arab religion or it's an Asian religion. And even some Muslims as well, they look down upon um, African people or people, or people of African descent and black people because of their skin complexion. So I wanted to kind of um, talk about that now. So like I said, so when we're talking about Islam, obviously when people talk about Islam, Muslims like to talk about there's no racism in Islam, um, you know, we've, we're, of all, we're of all different ethnicities and things like that. But the reality is 
the practices of a lot of Muslims contradicts that. So I wanted to kind of talk about why there's this uh, issue of anti-black racism um, within a lot of Muslim communities. Rather than spending too much time talking about you know, the book, because hopefully you'll buy it or read it, so you, I'm not going to repeat myself, I'm going to talk about why I wrote the book and hopefully what I'm trying to get from obviously this book and a couple of um, other projects which I'm uh, working on. And also I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about the Muslim community in uh, Salvador, which is in northeastern Brazil, Sao Paulo, which is in southeast Brazil, and also Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Um, so again, I'll talk, so if we can go to the next slides, please. Okay, so, so this is, I was talking, yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought. So, so my first book was called Illuminated Darkness, which I dealt with the issue of anti-black racism in Brazil. I mean, in Islam. Now, I went to, num I did a number of book launches. Um, this was an event I did in Lagos, uh, Nigeria. Lagos, um, the former capital city of Nigeria. Um, and after the event, I mean, the event was, it was, it was a nice turnout, like we've got here. And after the event, I was invited to go and see, meet the uh, Sultan of Sokoto um, in northern Nigeria, in Kaduna. Um, that's the picture in the middle of my mum and dad, and that's the picture of the of the sultan. And whilst I was at that, I mean, I thought I would, and this was the picture I took in his palace in his room with um, one of the. His name escapes me, but he's a he's a he's a member of the royal family in Nigeria. I was able to take a picture of him because at the time he was he wasn't wearing his royal garb. And again, just for protocol, you're not allowed to take. He can only be seen like if you look at the image, and it's quite small when he's wearing like his royal garb. The reason why I'm showing this for two reasons because my book the current book started here and how it started here was because in in my discussion when i was speaking to this and the sultan he asked me um i mean he enjoyed the book he said he you know he but he said that why didn't i mention or talk about a lot of the, or any nigerians because my first book i was mainly talking about um africans from sudan from ethiopian also but i didn't really mention any nigerian muslims and obviously he's nigerian so he said why didn't i mention um, any Nigerian Muslim, apart from his um, great-grandfather, Othmandon Fodia. Um, and he said, you know, I should write another book, but I'll talk about the contributions which, um, you know, particularly Nigerians have made in society, Nigerian Muslims, to serve as a form of inspiration for the Nigerian youth and even for elders, just so people can know the contributions that Nigerians have made uh, in, in society and in, and in history. At the time, I mean, I, I took his um, comments on board, but at the time I wasn't thinking about writing another book. Um, the f the, this was in February 2013. The following year, I, the following year, I went to um, Brazil for a holiday. I had no, um, I, it wasn't my intention to write a book or for any historic purposes. I just I went for the carnival, if I'm honest. Um, and whilst I was out there, sorry, if we can go to the next slide. So I'll talk, see, this is obviously a map of Brazil. So I went to Rio de Janeiro, which is here, this southeast Brazil, southeastern Brazil. Um, so whilst I was out there, I met obviously a number of people. Um, I remember one person in particular that um, I had a conversation with her, and then she was first. She asked me if I was from Bahia. Bahia is in northeast Brazil, which is here. Yeah, see, so there. And I asked why, and she said because my um, face resembles the people of Bahia. And I asked why is that? She said, and then she said that um, because obviously she was telling me about Brazilian history. She said that a number of the Brazilians that reside in Bahia of African descent, primarily of West African descent. And then she asked me like, what, where am I from? Like my heritage, I said Nigeria. Then she started, then she said, oh, you're Yoruba, right? And I said, yes, how do you know? And then she said, then she started saying, Kilo Shele and all these Yoruba. I don't understand Yoruba, unfortunately. No. Yeah, it's terrible. Exactly. But you know, English and Arabic, but she started speaking Yoruba to me and I was 
shocked that I'm in another continent, the other side of the world, and someone is speaking my mother tongue to me, and I don't even understand. And she's educating me about the Yoruba, um, the different Yoruba religions, the Yoruba culture, um, and she said that the Yoruba influence in Bahia in particular is very strong, and I need to visit that. Um, so that kind of struck a chord. So this was in like February, like so 2014, um, November 2014. I went back. I went to Bahia, and also went to Sao Paulo. Um, and whilst I was in Bahia, I was struck by, and anyone who's been to um, Bahia, you can see the clear African influence. I mean, like we see, like many of the, you know our fathers and mothers, the way they dress their garb, you see that, in, and I'll show you a couple of pictures of Brazilians dressing like that, and that's normal, you know, that's normal, um, that's normal day wear. And what I was surprised by as well is that a lot of the Brazilians are proud of their African heritage, more proud of the African heritage than I would say Africans living in this country and but the one thing which they're yearning for was to know about the African heritage, know about their past to know about what you know um, what people what their, what their predecessors had, had done in terms of their history but they're very proud of it and again so this was something which and I met a I went to a couple of the universities and I spoke to a couple of people and I was already aware of um, the impact that a number of Nigerians made in Brazil from my previous studies when I was researching for my first book but I, um, I didn't leave it in my first book. Um, so then I started to think, okay, maybe I should start writing um, a book, or initially, instead of writing a book, because most people, especially in my generation, do not like reading, my idea was to maybe do a short documentary or do like a picture book, because I know that pictures are more powerful than you know, <coughs> listening to someone speak or reading text, because not everyone has time you know, to read. So what I did, so you can see like the different phrases, um, I created a small picture book, and I, the reason why I created a small picture book, which kind of shows the different images of um, African history in Brazil and just short commentary, because I wanted to, whilst I was interviewing and speaking to different people, I wanted to see what people felt and in terms of if they were interested in this topic. Now, if people are interested in this topic, then that serves a form of inspiration for myself to, to continue pursuing what I'm doing. Um, and then um, I released, again, so I'm just going very quickly, I, I released, the, I then finished writing a book about. Uh, I think it was November 2015, um, and then I went back to Brazil, November, December 2015, and I went and I came back. I was in Brazil again, April, March and April of this year, where I held a number of book launch events. So if we can go to the next slide, um, and so this is so I, I held a book launch event in this is in Salvador. Um, this is uh, that was the top right hand corner. That was um, a professor in the Afro Brazilian Institute who. You know, when she, because again, I was just curious. I wanted to find out about Brazilian history, and I wanted to find out about Brazilian history from the perspective of Brazilians. I didn't want to go and start imposing how I think maybe Brazil is or what their history is. I wanted to understand not only their history but how they feel about their history. So I, I conducted, like I said, a number of interviews, spoke to a number of people, and again, I was surprised by how much people was interested to learn about their their, their, their heritage. So again, so this is a couple of. The images that I talk of some of uh, some of the Brazilians from different parts of Salvador, like I said, Sao Paulo, which is southeastern Brazil, and Rio de Janeiro. So if we can go to the next slide, and again, that's some um, that's the picture of the book launch. And the bottom right-hand corner, that was a meeting I had with um, a Brazilian professor who wrote a very extensive book about the history of African or West Africans in particular in Brazil. It's trans been translated into English called Slave Rebellion in Brazil. So he was. Because what I wanted, so I didn't just want it, obviously, because he, his book is probably, you could say, the best book, arguably the best book 
if you want to know about the um, West African history in Brazil, um, he's gone to um, America, he's done a number of talks at Harvard University, he's come to England a couple of times, speaking, doing a number of lectures or speaking about um, you know, the history of um, West African Muslims in Brazil. But what I wanted to do is not only, really, I don't want to just, I wanted to supplement his work by talking about, um, because again, he's not a Muslim, and one of the things that he did say was that, obviously in terms of the Islam aspect and some of the motivations of the uh, Muslims, he wasn't aware of. So that's where obviously me being a Muslim and knowing a bit more probably about the religion than he did, and I can probably investigate that more in terms of understanding and reading some of the texts which a lot of the um, African Muslims left behind and trying to deduce and understand of what some of their motivations was. Um, so again, so that was, again, that's, and this is the top left-hand corner is <coughs> Afro-Brazilian Museum in Sao Paulo. And again, like, so example, this gentleman on the right-hand side, when he found out about the topic of my book, he was more interested and intrigued than anyone I've met in my life. He was as if he was African. And this is something which I, I want to demonstrate and show that the difference between, unfortunately, I don't know what the reason is, but what I found was in Brazil compared to maybe other parts of uh, this country, and maybe around Europe, is that they are yearning to learn about their history. The only one of the problems is is the lack of books. So most of the books, obviously, in Portuguese, and most of the writers are Portuguese. So talking about history from a Eurocentric perspective, from a European perspective, but very few people are talking about like as the African perspective, and not only for Muslims, but just Black people in general. So that's why. Um, you know, I think it's important that we've got, you know, works like this, and hopefully there'll be other works that people's going to investigate and talk about the contributions which Black people, and obviously Muslims, made in history. So if we go to um, the next slide, now I want to kind of go into a summary of the Muslim presence in Brazil. As you can see from the slide, um, the Islamic presence of the Muslim presence in Brazil can be split into four stages. We've got the first stage, which is a stage of the African Muslim explorers um, um, who travelled to northeastern Brazil between the ninth and fourteenth century. And I'll talk a little bit about that later in my later slides. The second stage is the enslaved um, African Muslims, of primarily of Yoruba and House of Descent, which is in modern-day Nigeria. Um, between the 15th and 19th century, I'll talk a little bit about um, you know, the contributions that they made in, uh, in northeastern Brazil in particular. Then the first stage is the Arab Muslim immigrants from Syria and Lebanon um, in the 19th and early 20th century. And then the final stage um, is a number of the growing rise of a number of Brazilians of of their, of, from various um, backgrounds and ethnicities who converted to Islam um, since the 1990s and the number of Muslim um, economic migrants from the Arab world and, um, and from Africa are traveling to Brazil. So, so, uh, so I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll give an overview about these four stages um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the Muslim communities in uh, Salvador, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. So if you can go to the next slide, please. So I want to talk about the first stage. I mean, a lot of people, when, they, when people think about even unfortunately with a number of professors, when they think about the Islamic presence or Islam in Brazil, they think it started with slavery or with the number of the West Africans who are Muslim who are enslaved in Brazil. But not many people, not many people are aware that a number of um, Muslim explorers, some from West Africa and some from North Africa, traveled to the Americas even before the European colonizers. And this is something that not many people are aware of. And this is part of the hidden history which Prophet Ahmed was talking about, that it's important that and we can't expect other people to tell us own history. And this is something that's well documented. This isn't like a conspiracy or anything like that. Even um, many people, even when you think about um, who discovered America, most people say Christopher Columbus. Now, not many people are aware of that. Even when Christopher Columbus, when he traveled to, and he was lost, by the way. It's not like he was, he was lost. He was trying to get to India. When he arrived in um, America, um, there's even reports that he found um, gold that was from Mali. 
you found gold that was from Mali, and a number of historians and anthropologists are have deduced that that gold, because Christopher Columbus, I think, it was the late, I think, it's fifth, late late fifteenth century. That, yes, late fifth, uh, late fifteenth century. Before 13, uh, 1312, has anyone has everyone heard of Mansa Musa? So Mansa Musa, we know, is the great Mali emperor, but many, not many people know about his brother, Abu Bakr II. Abu Bakr II, who was his predecessor, not his brother, so his predecessor, he, um, he with um, 2,000 ships, travelled across the uh, Atlantic, and there's reports which he landed in northeastern Brazil in a city called Recife. And there's no reports of them coming back, but the fact that they obviously they, they took a number of gold and a number of like food stuff and stuff with them, this is why a number of the historians that said when Christopher Columbus and some of the Europeans when they found the gold for Mali, it was probably from the West Africans who travelled to Brazil, or travelled to travel to the Americas and also like they landed in Brazil. There's also reports from before obviously the 14th century, um, during the 9th century, when the Muslims were ruling Islamic Spain, which is modern day Spain, obviously Portugal. There was a report of a um, North African Moor. A Moor is a word, it was a controversial word. It could be referred to someone who's Berber, I mean, someone from North Africa, someone of Arab descent, someone who's black, whatever. But we know generally that when people talk about Moor, it's probably someone who's on, from North Africa. There's a report of a North African who traveled to across the Atlantic and he came back with a number of riches. And a number of like historians and anthropologists, again, just by looking at the, uh, the map and the way. Like if you were to, if you if the, the current of the map and things like that, he probably would have landed wherever in Brazil or somewhere around the South America or around the Caribbean. So this is some of again like the, a lost history, which shows that when we're talking about Islam or the African presence in the Americas, it starts way beyond slavery. It starts way beyond slavery. So this is something that I wanted to kind of talk about. Um, and then if we look at the second, the next slide, sorry. Again, I want to talk about uh, this is. Because I don't really want to talk too much about slavery. Slavery is quite a depressing topic. And I don't want to just talk about a topic that's just going to make people feel, you know, that they want to go outside and do some sort of rampage. I want to talk about things which we've contributed, like, positively. Now, obviously, we know about slavery. I'm not going to talk too much about that. Um, but just a few points as people understand the context of how this um, African state developed. Um, when, many people, when many people think about slavery, generally they think about America because obviously like the films, the books, the documentary, and things like that. But not many people know that 10 times more black people was enslaved and transported to Brazil than it was to the United States. So when you're thinking about the transatlantic slave trade, obviously we know about, like as the United States of America, we know about the Caribbean because there's many people of Caribbean descent living in England, but the impact of slavery, of slavery and the legacy of slavery is far stronger in Brazil than, than, in, uh, than in the Americas. And um, like I said, I mean, there's some estimates between 3 million and 5 million um, Africans in total was transported to, um, to Brazil and um, in northeastern Brazil in a in a city called Palmeiras a number of the West Af a number of the Africans who are obviously enslaved ran away and set up what you call in English maroon societies or in uh, Portuguese called Quilombo okay and this Quilombo there's a number of Quilombos but I mainly want to talk about uh, the Quilombo of Palmeiras now this this society was self-sufficient, it was multicultural, so even though it primarily consisted of Africans, even some white Europeans who were, you could say, some of the poor white Europeans, even some of them 
wanted to live in this in this state. <coughs> the reason why because the Africans who are governed who are governing this particular society were treating people fairly. So they wanted to go to a just society. So this is something that shows it wasn't even though it was primarily led by Africans. Even you had some Europeans and even indig indigenous Brazilians who were part of this society. And this is a, um, and this was a society which lasted for almost a hundred years. And like, please don't mistake that even though this was a self-sufficient society, they were constantly attacked from the Europeans, from the Portuguese, obviously in Brazil, and also the Dutch. But they managed to not only, despite having inferior weapons and inferior in terms of manpower, they were still able to preserve themselves and obviously preserve of the, their faiths. Some of them were, most of them were, were traditional African, uh, followers of the traditional African religions, but there were also some Muslims as well who helped um, Zombie, who I'm going to talk about later, who helped um, form some fortresses and things like that. So I'll talk a little bit about the legacy and the history of um, uh, the Colombo of our Palmeiras. If we can go to the next slide. And then this is a figure which I also talk about. It's called Zombie dos Palmeiras, Zombie of Palmeiras. He is the, the last leader of Palmeiras. Um, he was executed in 1695 um, on the 20th of November. And his legacy, um, his legacy is still strong and still remains strong in Brazil, so much so that you have the university that's named after him. And even um, there's, in Brazil now, they've got a Black Conscious Day. So you know, like, we've got Black History Month in the UK. In Brazil, they've also got a Black Conscious Day, and it's named <coughs> after this man. And again, the reason why I think figures like him is important is because his resistance and the resistance of a lot of African Muslims, we're still drawing inspiration from these type of figures. So I think that's as important, that even though he was... A minority and he was in a difficult situation the fact that he was able to resist obviously the western powers at the, that time it serves a form of inspiration hopefully to us now in terms of whatever kind of issues that we're kind of we're going or whatever um what, what we're facing if we can go to the next slide please i'm just conscious of the time okay so this is a slave revolt so because now i'm talking about now that this is the second you know i said the muslim presence in brazil was split into four stages the first stage, African explorers. The second stage was the enslaved Africans. This is now part of the second stage, which is of the, like I said, in Brazil, between three million and five million Africans were transported to Brazil, and a number of those were, a number of those Africans were from uh, West Africa, and a number of those West Africans set up communities. Where they set up communities, they set up schools where they taught people, like I mentioned earlier, about Islam. They taught people Arabic and things like that. Now, one thing that we should be aware of, and again, hopefully to draw some inspiration from, is that a number of these Muslims were educated and were literate, unlike a number of the other African um, slaves people. And this was a threat to the Portuguese who were governing Brazil at the time. It was a threat to the elite because someone who's literate, someone who's knowledgeable, they can empower other people. That's why it talks about the importance of knowledge. Okay? And this is something that even despite their situation, despite the fact that they were enslaved, they still managed to find a little, they still, because even, or, even though they were obviously enslaved and they had to carry out their, their duties as slaves, they were also able to work on the side and they were quite industrious. And they, you know, they bought and sell and they were able to trade after obviously fulfilling their slave duties. And a number of them, with the money that they made, unlike, because um, it's reported, a number of the African, of African non-Muslims, they spent a lot of their money on like liquor and things like that. Whereas a number of the African Muslims, they spent their money on books, Qurans, and this is something again that's documented, and some people might be thinking, how was, how did they get Qurans in, in Brazil? They had bookshops there, and obviously because they had some money, they were able to order it from 
Brazil, which they got from France. And there's even a report of, even with, um, like I think about 100 Qurans was brought in, uh, in, in Salvador. So that shows even despite the situation that they were in, they were still able, they were still dedicated <coughs> to their faith and they're still trying to teach people about the religion. And not only that, they're educating the other, the, the non-Muslims that are also enslaved, the importance obviously being steadfast. Because, and the reason why faith serves as an important, important factor, especially if you're in a difficult situation, because you can try and see, um, again, you can try and see the positive out of your situation. The positive, do you understand? Again, you don't want to kind of, again, it's a difficult situation, but everything happens for a reason. As a Muslim, you believe that everything is under the qadr, the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of God Almighty. So even though you're in a difficult situation, some of them, they even talk about, they sort of a situation where they can tell other non-Muslims about Islam. So even though they've been transported from the other side of the world, other side from Africa to South America, and they're enslaved in a difficult situation, they, they didn't give up on their faith. So when you're seeing these type of stories and people are still reading the Quran, praying and all sorts of things, what's, what excuse have we got? And that's again, so I don't want to just talk about history of, you know, we achieved such and such, but it's a form of inspiration that if people are going through these difficult situations and they're still maintaining their prayer as much as they can, they're still trying to read the Quran and things like that, what excuse have we got? And that's again what I want to kind of make sure is kind of clear, not just talk about history, but things that we, like lessons that we can learn from um, the people of the past. Um, a number of these West Africans, uh, Muslims, they led a number of slave revolts. I won't go into too much detail about the slave revolts, but this was some of the parchments that were found. Um, this is um, a book, as you can see, and it's got some, some of them had verses from the Quran, like the verse, like the, what's on the right is Laylatul um, Qadr. It's one of the verses from um, the Quran which talks about the night of decree, which, um, again, for the benefit of the non-Muslims in the audience, is the night which Muslims believe that the Quran was descended um, from God Almighty to Angel Jibreel to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So, this is a, um, and they, you know, they wrote a number of um, verses from the Quran, obviously, for their regular prayers, also to teach people. And uh, this is a, an amulet, it's a parchment which has got some amulets and it's got some du'a, some prayers, which some of the African Muslims wrote. And now, what the Portuguese, the Portuguese authorities in Brazil, once they found out about this particular revolt, because they found out, because there was a traitor amongst, uh, amongst the Africans who told the Portuguese what some of these um, West Africans are planning, um, the, the revolt was, was quashed very quickly. And then what they did, they went around and found anyone, they raided people's houses, anyone who had any evidence of like Arabic writing or any kind of Islamic literature or anything like that was either deported back to West Africa, um, was imprisoned, um, punished, whether it's by lashing or killed. And that's one of the um, unfortunate things. But what the Portuguese, the Portuguese in Brazil, they feared was that this might spread. Because a lot of the, if, if you've got a lot of the number of African Africans who are revolting, and obviously they're successful, then obviously that might lead to other Africans that's going to revolt as well. And obviously slavery, you know, is primarily it's all about economics. If you've got people that's working for free, and obviously you're, you're enriching, obviously, you're the, the masters, they don't want people to revolt. They don't want people to obviously to be free. So I'll talk obviously a little bit about the legacy of, of, of the West African Muslims. And on top of that, I also talk about, um, again, I'm not going to spend too much time because I kind of want to open up a bit more for questions and things like that. And I've got other things I want to talk about. But a lot, of, not, not, not a lot of people know that. Not, <coughs> not a lot of people know that. Um, so, so we've got the, the history of slave revolts in in the Americas isn't just restricted to Brazil. We had the famous slave revolt in Haiti, um, and I think that was in the 18th century. 
and that led to the Haitian Republic. And it was the first and only independent um, country, and they were able to defeat the French, who were the Western power at that time. So things like this. So when you've got, and obviously the Haitian Revolt was before the, um, the slave revolt, which took place in northeastern Brazil, and this served as a form of inspiration for the West African Muslims in Brazil. And also there was a number of slave revolts, which I talk about in the book, which I won't go into too much detail now, which took place in uh, in Baghdad in the ninth century. And I'll talk about the similarities between the West, um, the East African um, Zanj. There's a tribe in East Africa who's led this number of slave revolts in Baghdad, and I draw some comparisons between um, the West Africans who were enslaved in, in Brazil, and I talk about like, the, some of the motivations and some of the lessons that we can learn. If we can go to the next slide, please. Okay, this is some images of um, <coughs> African Muslims in 19th century Brazil. Top right-hand corner. This is a painting of a, um, it was, I think it's 18 something, but it's in the late 19th century of a French. Um, artist who travelled to Brazil and he drew some images of like the Brazilian communities, but particularly like the Black Africans. You can see, even by their garb, it's very like uh, Arab or Islamic looking, and they're practice they're, they're performing hijama. There's a cup in therapy, so this is obviously clear evidence of the of the, of the presence of African Muslims in Brazil, and uh, these are some of the pictures of some of the formerly enslaved or enslaved Africans. Um, and even you can see by their facial features, these are people clearly of African descent, primarily, I mean, particularly the gentleman in the middle is clearly of um, Yoruba descent by his, uh, the tribal marks, which some um, historians and people researchers suggest that he's from the oil state. So this is, again, this is clear evidence of the African presence and the, the Nigerian presence in Brazil. So this is a couple of interesting pictures. If we can go to the next slide, please. And then... So now we're, that's the history, now it's about like contemporary times and the African influence of Brazil. I'm sure everyone knows who the gentleman is in the top right hand corner, um, the late um, Michael Jackson. This particular picture was, I don't know if, I'm sure you're probably aware of the song They Don't Care About Us. Okay, maybe not, but yeah. okay, right. So in that, in that particular song, he's, he's wearing a t-shirt um, of an Afro-Brazilian activist group called Olodum. Now, this, the term Olodum was founded in 1979, and the purpose of the group was to create art and culture from the black consciousness movement. And um, the word Olodum is taken from the Yoruba word for the deity, or Yoruba god called, called Olodumare. So that just shows a clear Yoruba influence in, 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 in Brazil, even in Brazil to, today. Another... Um, Bottom left hand corner, another Afro Brazilian activist group called, forgive my pronunciation, Ileaye, which means in Yoruba, like House of Life. And this is again, this is, um, and these are Afro Brazilians, and this is an Afro Brazilian activist group talking about black empowerment and trying to educate people about, obviously, not only um, the, about black and African history, but they set up schools and they're trying to teach people, obviously, how they can kind of further their career and things like that, like, while giving like, career advice and career development. So this is just show like the, the clear African presence or the clear Nigerian presence in contemporary Brazil. If you can go to the next slide, please. And again, these are some pictures of Afro, and these are all Brazilians. So you can even tell by the garb, you'd think that this is in West Africa. This is in Northeastern Brazil and Bahia. And a lot of, if you go again, particularly in Bahia, a lot of people, they dress like this. This is normal. So the way a number of like our mothers are dressed, you fit in perfectly like in Brazil. That's how, especially in Northeast Brazil. So this is their tie. And also, again, forgive my pronunciation, 
Akara, okay. In Brazil, this is in Brazil. In Brazil, this is called Akaraje. 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 In Brazil, that's what it's called. Now, obviously, in Nigeria, we call it. Okay. So this is, again, this shows the clear, um, the the clear heritage of of the, of the African Muslims or the African, sorry, in contemporary Brazil. And obviously, we've got the bottom right hand corner. This is a picture of um, Pele in the in the museum. So again, I just wanted to show so you can clearly see the African influence in contemporary Brazil nowadays. So if we can go to the next slide, please. And then even in terms of, um, you know, like I said, there's a revival of, of Islam, of Brazilians like, trying to find out about the African heritage, Islamic heritage. This is a couple of pictures of an exhibition which, which took place a, cu a couple of years ago. It's about the growing interest in Islam in Brazil and trying to challenge the perception that Islam is the Arab religion. So again, so this is a couple of the... Uh, um, visitor, visitors and obviously you've got the different pictures and information about um, uh, about obviously Brazil's Islamic um, past. If we go to the next slide, please. And again, this is some more um, images as well. And if you go to the next slide, please. Okay, so now I want to quickly talk about the different Muslim communities in um, in contemporary Brazil. I will only talk about Sao Paulo. Rio de Janeiro and uh, Salvador, because they were the three cities that I visited. And one thing which is striking, again, depending on where you go, um, the Muslim community, the, the Muslim community, don't get me wrong, is still small, but Islam is a growing religion in Brazil, in Brazil because a lot of people are trying to find about the Islamic faith. Um, again, according to the recent census which came out in 2010, there were two thousand, there were approximately 35,000 um, Muslims, and that has increased by 29% from from 10 years ago when the figure was about 27,000. There's some Muslim organizations which suggest that there's up to a million, on some say 1.5 million Muslims currently living in Brazil. I mean, that, that figure is probably exaggerated, but Allah knows best, but it's probably somewhere in between the two, which is obviously a big difference on the figure. But in, in terms of trying to, um, the makeup of a number of the Muslims in Sao Paulo, they're predominantly um, Arab, of Arab descent. And the, reason, and the reason why a number of them are Arab descent when I mentioned the three stage of the Muslim presence in Brazil, you had the first stage of African Muslim explorers, the second stage of the transatlantic slave trade, the third stage of the Arab Muslims who emigrated uh, to Brazil um, in the 19th and 20th century, predominantly a number of those Arabs were Christians. There was about 7 million in total that, um, that traveled to Brazil um, during that period. But there was a number of them were Muslims. So obviously their descendants are still, obviously a number of them are still Muslims. So this talks, so that's why the majority of the, um, the Muslim population in Sao Paulo are Arabs. But you still also do have, you know, um, Brazilians of African descent and you know Brazilians of um, and, 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 and native Brazilians that wouldn't classify themselves as of African descent, but just but just mixed. So if we can go to the next slide. And then this is another still of um, obviously Muslims in Brazil. You can see clearly by the picture, a number of the Muslims are of Arab descent, um, and again, even just in terms of talking about the number of mosques and institutions in Brazil, it's growing each year. Um, there was a account that came out recently by the UNI who said that um, the first mosque in, Sa in Sao Paulo was built in, in, 2000, in 1952, um, and in 2005 there was a report that said there was only 70 mosques in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is the largest, uh, mus largest city of Muslims, in, in not only Brazil but in South America. But today, um, there's about 115 mosques in Brazil, which shows obviously Islam is growing, the Prince of Islam is growing. Um, and like I said, it's the largest Muslim community in South America. 
Um, and then if we can go to the next slide, I'll talk a little bit about the Muslim community in Rio de Janeiro. Unlike Sao Paulo, which predominantly um, the Muslims make, the makeup of the Muslims are of Arab descent, in Rio de Janeiro it's more mixed. So like there was in 2003, a study um, found that there was 50% 50, 50 of the Muslim migrants um, were from the Middle East, whereas in Sao Paulo it's probably like about 70 to 80%. And even this figure, it fell to just 15% in 2014. So that shows that a number of, a, a large number of the Muslim population is not only from of Arab descent, there's a number of converts, a lot of Brazilians, native Brazilians who are, who are converting to Islam. And most of the converts um, are of African descent, are like black, are like black, um, black Brazilians. So if we can go to the next slide, I'll talk a little bit. We're coming towards the end because I can see some people are maybe need a little break or I want to open up for some questions or some discussion. I'll talk a little bit, I spent a, a bit of time um, in Salvador, which I, I said is in northeastern Brazil. Um, Salvador is the former capital city of Brazil, um, population of uh, 3 million people, um, and it's the largest city in Bahia, and 80% of the inhabitants of African descent, and it's kind of considered to be like the blackest, it's kind of considered to be Africa outside of Africa, because if you were to go there, particularly like Salvador, it's a very like, um, you, you see a lot of people with clear African heritage in, in, in Salvador. There's a Muslim community, which I'll talk about a bit later, which was set up um, in 1990. But this is a picture of um, the Salvador Mosque. If you can go to the next slide. Okay, so this, these are three interesting characters. This is the Salvador Mosque. Um, the bottom right-hand corner is an Arab, Arab Muslim um, businessman who was, from, who was from Sao Paulo. He emigrated to Sao Paulo. And then when he found out about the history of Islam in Brazil, particularly in Salvador, when he travelled to Salvador, he wanted to resurrect that. So, with the, so he bought this building. It was it was a, it was a house, and he converted. He wanted not only to be a, a, a mosque, but he wanted it to be like a community centre to serve the people. But he wanted to educate even the Brazilians in Salvador about their Islamic heritage and African heritage. So, with this man in the top left-hand corner, Mr. Wale Akani, he, he is a Nigerian um, entrepreneur. He moved to Brazil in 1980 initially to study, and then when he found, uh, no, sorry, 1990, and then when he found, he met this man, and then he asked him to build, um, if, they, if he'd be interested in helping build a mosque and a, and, and a cultural center to serve, um, not only because there wasn't that many Muslims, but serve some of the Muslims and then teach people about Brazil's Islamic heritage. Um, then they formed this mosque with a couple of other people, and they invited this man in the top right hand corner. Um, Mr. Abdul Hamid Ahmed um, from, Niger um, from Nigeria, he's a Yoruba Muslim, and they wanted specifically a Yoruba Muslim to come and lead the congregation, just so people can see the heritage. Okay, so he's, he's been the Imam of the mosque since 1992. Um, I was fortunate enough to, um, to speak to him, and, and he's, he's still currently the, the Imam at the mosque. If you can go to the next slide, please. And then this is, again, some images of the community, um, the Islamic Cultural Center of Bahia, and the population, I mean, the community in Salvador in particular is, is increasing each year. Um, they're now actually planning to try and build another um, mosque, or try and purchase another mosque, sorry. Um, just because every year there's a number of people that's, um, when they find out about, not only about, and what I want to kind of stress is that the thing which he said when I spoke to him is that, or anyone going to Brazil trying to understand Brazil, you have to understand Brazilian culture and how Brazilians understand things, not try and impose even 
okay, there's ties between obviously Nigeria and West Africa and Brazil, but even how they practice things is different. Not necessarily Islam, just about the way their mannerisms and things like that. So he was saying that one of the difficulties initially that he faced that some people that was going over, particularly from Arab countries or even um, America, was trying to enforce things very quickly. Like, why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Why is and what he was saying, it, things are slowly. It, you, you have to take time. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand the people first and foremost. And then obviously, and on top of that, you need to. If you're someone that is beneficial to society at large, then people see like the beauty of the religion. If you're just preaching, it's not going to work. And that's something which he's active, actively doing with a number of, of uh, the Muslims in the congregation, is showing people that Muslims are beneficial to society. And I think that's something that, again, we can kind of learn from and, uh, and take some lessons from. If we can quickly go to the next slide, I'll come in at the end. And then again, this is just a couple of pictures um, of the Muslim community, like I said, in Salvador by... Uh, and um, I'll, just, I'll just share a couple of few things that when, when I spoke to a number of the Brazilians, Muslims out there. One thing they did say, and this is even that we might not realise, even like the work that Brother Ahmed and everyone I, IHRC is doing, is the power of the internet. So you might, or like we might be here, however many of us there are, and the little work that we're doing, or even on internet, the, the importance of the internet, that's something that they did stress, is that a number of Brazilians found out about Islam, found out about the African heritage because of the internet. So that's why it's important for even the little things that you don't, don't think necessarily about impact you're having here you might have a big impact on the other side of the world and that's something one of the brothers he was almost in tears and he was saying that he found he wanted to specifically thank the london muslims for inviting him to islam i said how did they do that he said because he was just on the internet reading about different things he found he came across a forum by london uh, muslims based in london talking about the religion and then he found out about islam and he lives close to this muslim he never never realized it and then he found out about the mosque and then again so he, he it's just I think it's important, and again, I don't want to just talk about history and talk about oh, we did this, we did that, what we can learn from it. So it's something that if we, and I'm primarily speaking to the, to the Muslims, that if you're benefiting people and people can see the benefit of what you're doing, people naturally will gravitate towards you. But if you're just preaching and talking about we did this and we did that, or people can't see that in your work, in your actions, it's not going to go anywhere. And that's something which you can kind of, which I saw for myself um, in Brazil, and I think that's, just, again, just something, just little insights about my few trips there and uh, again a quick overview about the book I think the next I think coming to the end and then I think we can uh, open up for like questions and discussions and things like that. Round of Um Thank you, um, that was uh, excellent. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd made a start on the book uh, I, unfortunately, I was unwell last week, so I wasn't, um, I wasn't able to complete it. But it was, it's really well written, really um, well researched, um, and I was quite pleasantly surprised. Um, there's a professor, um, Paolo Pinto, you mentioned. I was like, uh, his name has to come up somewhere, and you do mention him a couple of times, because uh, I was fortunate to meet him uh, when I was abroad. And he was going through, he's not Muslim himself, but he comes off kind of Arab descent. Um, we had some very interesting discussion, and I just realised that the um, that th this section of the world, South America, is so neglected. Uh, Muslims just seem to be kind of feel as if there's nothing there. Um, that there was no there's no heritage, uh, there's no contributions, um, and it's just uh, a very kind of exotic place to go to. And uh, I always wonder that if uh, if Al-Andalus didn't fall in 1492, if only he didn't fall. Would the transatlantic slave trade have taken place? Would it have taken place? 
because one of the most darkest part of our history, human history, is the slave trade. Would have happened if the Muslims are still in power or still have uh, sizable population in Muslim Spain, in Portugal. What would have been the reality from there on? Because what happened from 1492 onwards, because mm. Christopher Columbus, the criminal, had approached the, uh, the, the kings uh, the, uh, before they conquered the Muslim land. And he kind of came out of the stereo of he wanted to go to India. And they say that his actual agenda was to kind of liberate Palestine um, from the Muslims. Anyway, but he had a discussion with the king and the queen and said, you know, this is what I want to do and I, I can bring you riches and whatnot. And the, the king and queen at that time had said to him, wait a few months and um, we should conquer um, Al-Andalus. And once you have done that, we'll kind of commission your ships. And literally, he, he waited um, outside Granada. He rented a place out and he waited for that moment, for that moment when Muslim Spain fell. And as soon as it fell, he went into the Alhambra, where the new king and queen had taken presence and um, asked for the finance to take the ships. And they all started the misery of millions, of hundreds of millions of, of, uh, of, uh, of human beings uh, that kind of started the pillaging of uh, not only Africa, but the pillaging of South America and then later on the colonialism that took place all over the world. And the legacy of colonialism is still kind of apparent as of today because there are certain countries in Africa are paying money to the French government, for example, for giving them freedom. Still to this day. And literally, Haiti, as you mentioned, Haiti uh, just paid off their debt uh, to the French government for giving, for, for giving the freedom, uh, the independence. Um, so, this history is really important, the fact that Habib revived it, and we need to continue this message, we need to continue this supporting the cause. Um, but uh, one way to do so is to buy the book today. Um, so please do. Uh, I'd like to take some questions and answers from uh, from the floor, please. Uh, if I can take a few questions at a time and then uh, pose them, and then we can come back to the floor again. So, Ms., the sister at the back, anyone else? Okay, Ms., if you. Yeah, um, first of all, I'm just, I just want to say thank you very much for the presentation. It was very um, illuminating and um, you know very educational. Um, yeah, um, I read a book uh, recently by an author called Hisham D. Abi, and he wrote a book called. Um, uh, rebel music based empire race and the new Muslim youth culture and in the book he had a chapter on uh, his first chapter was about brazil and about the culture in brazil and one of the things i deduced from that was that apart from you know migration and things like that one of the ways that kind of brazil and brazilian culture kind of helped you know helped grasp its kind of muslim identity was this celebration of like the, i think he called it the moriscos women or something like that some kind of orientalized version of, of the African woman mm -hmm. and through that orientalization that you know they they kind of they were able to grasp the kind of you know the concept of Islam and things like that within the culture do you find that to be the case as well in your visit in Brazil do you find that to be the case or was he right or wrong or do you want to take another question or do you want to answer that no, I can, can answer that yeah yeah, yeah that because he mentioned two things I read the um, book he mentioned yeah the Morisco women who were like the mixed race women and that ties into Again, Portuguese history, we understand Portuguese history, like the, the Portuguese who colonized Brazil, they were, I'm trying to be careful my words, because their first sight to Brazil, because when then there's reports that even when Pedro um, 
Alves when he first landed in Brazil in 1500 and what they were enamoured by Brazil is the Brazilian women because a lot of them were naked and things like that and they used to talk about these exotic women and they drew comparisons with the native Brazilian women who were brown in complexion, brown in complexion long black hair with the North Africans when they were in the Iberian Peninsula because again in the, a lot of the Portuguese and Spanish they were enamoured by the North African yeah. women as well so that's what that, and they used to kind of talk about that a lot in their, like, their literature and things like that so when he was talking about that's how because again in, in, in Brazilian literature popular, popular culture they talk a lot about like, the exotic woman and they used some references to like, the North African things like that so that's why he was drawn comparison that when a lot of the youth or when people found out about this and they, they traced obviously oh there was an Islamic presence yeah. and then they found out about Islam but there's another thing that he did mention as well in his book was the the influence of hip-hop music. I don't really yeah. talk about that too much, but I did mention it in my book. The importance of hip-hop music in terms of reawakening and, sh and telling people about Islam. So, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people in my generation, we don't like to read. <coughs> um, but obviously we like music, we like visual things. And a lot of the um, hip-hop rappers, a lot of the rappers, particularly from America, not all of them were necessarily Muslim, but because they were using Arabic words or they were, or they were referring to historical figures, whether it's like Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and things like that, and even like you've got the public enemy and using like Arabic words, and even like Tupac Shakur, people don't even know Shakur is an Arabic name. So when people kind of find out and research about, it, then they realize, and they, and some of them were talking about the history of the West African Muslims in their slave revolts in Brazil. So when you're a Brazilian, you're hearing that, then they're doing some research into their culture and their history, and then that's how some of them found about found out about Islam and embrace Islam. So yeah, there's a number of different reasons. I didn't really get time to kind of talk about it today, but I mentioned my previous presentation that. Even with understanding what drew um, Brazilians to Muslims and why they converted, it depends on their background. So generally, and I found that a number of Brazilians from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds and generally of African descent, they were more captivated by like when like the hip hop. They found out an issue about Islam by learning like hip hop music and black activists and and, and the Malay revolt, the revolt <coughs> of the Muslims in 19th century, because obviously they're in a difficult situation and they found inspiration from those black enslaved black Africans who were resisting. You understand, so obviously they can relate to it. Whereas a number of the uh, converts sort of Arab and European descent Brazilians that I spoke to, a number of them they found out about Islam, or they're intrigued about Islam from maybe Sufism or learning about Islam in the education system, things like that. So again, it depends on it. It, it differs depending on obviously what their economic situation, obviously, the, and the person is. But generally, it's, it's fascinating because, like I said, a number of the Brazilians of, and it's similar in this country to what, to be honest as well, that you do find that a number of Brazilian, I mean, people from maybe you could say low socioeconomic backgrounds. They, they kind of resonate with people maybe similar to them. If they happen to be Muslim, then they might be right. more aligned to them. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, so it's, I mean, this topic is endless. The country is like massive. I mean, Brazil's got like 200 million people, and there's so much things I can talk about. But um, yeah, but like you said, that was some of the two points. Oh, that was the point in particular in terms of the Morisco women yeah. and things like that, and that ties into the people of the Iberian Peninsula. The government was definitely not supportive and the reason <coughs> why um, is because a lot of the Muslims were seen as a nuisance they were rebellious they were troublesome and they were causing a lot of commotion and not only that they were instigating things not instigating just to attack people they were instigating people to obviously to not be enslaved and they were obviously encouraging other people to fight against slavery and to like run away and set up maroon communities like Pilombos and so because of that, that's, I mean, the government was not helping at all. I mean, the government wanted to suppress the Muslim, uh, anyone who was rising, leading uprising. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or not, but particularly the Muslims, because they found the Muslims to be quite dangerous. 
and that's why even the term I don't really get to talk um, uh, much. The um, the Portuguese they refer to um, the Muslim as um, Malays, and that word is derived from the Ni the Yoruba word Imale for Muslims. So that's they were they were they specifically targeted. Particularly, they were saying like the Yoruban House of Muslims. They were troublesome. They were troublesome not because they were just wanted to cause anarchy, because they were resisting slavery. And again, if that can have in their in their from their perspective, that can have uh, that can affect their pocket because of the number of um, um, you know slaves are revolting, and that's going to affect their economy. You know, so so the the government was no way supportive or at any uh, by any stretch of the imagination, unfortunately. I do not speak Yoruba and I barely understand it just prime the only reason is because I'm lazy. I probably should understand the language, but yeah, I'm just lazy. But it's it's it is interesting that people from the other side of the world do speak the language. In regards to the first part of your question in terms of the Muslim community in Brazil, one thing I did find, which again I, I didn't mention in my presentation, is that a number of um the same way I mentioned like a number of Brazilians are interested about their African heritage, and that includes Brazilians who are darker complexion. Like white in complexion, you know, of, of European descent, um, even in terms of Islam, unlike Europe, a number of Brazilians I came across, both um, both Muslims and non-Muslims, were very tolerant of people of other faiths, and they didn't have an issue like the whole issue of Islamophobia and how Muslims were struggling in, in in parts of Europe in particular. I didn't get that impression from speaking to a number of Muslims when I was out, and non-Muslims as well, and even the media. So. They're very Brazilians are very tolerant people. Again, there are some issues where obviously I mean, maybe some Muslims are discriminated against, and there. But from, from my my finding, speaking to people, and it was it's, it's isolated. But there are tolerant. It's just a thing that they didn't have access to learn about the religion. So again, the fact that and there was even a number of um, uh, Muslims from like Egypt and the Arab world who were who were emigrating to Brazil, because again, some things some people might not be able to deal with because you know you see all sorts of things, but they were actually tolerant in terms of letting people practice their faith and people that ask questions. So when women were wearing, like in South Padre, you see a number of women maybe wearing like the hijab and longer, people ask questions like, what is that, why are you wear that, you know? But it's, a, it's a, the, the onus is on Muslims to kind of then not be shy about their faith and talk about it. If someone's asking a question, they're intrigued, you know, tell them about what, what you, why you wear your dress like this or, and things like that. So my experience again of Brazil and speaking to Brazilians, they're very tolerant, which I think is a, uh, um, I am actually, I've actually got some footage, I've already started filming the documentary because, again, I, I was, my idea in terms of obviously this, this project, shall we say, is not just a book because I know a lot of people of my generation who do not like reading and I'm aware of that and you can't force, even people that's older, you can't force people to read but it's important to um, let people know, be aware of the history which is obviously hidden and things like that. So what I've, I'm in the process of uh, making a documentary, but what I want to do is make a couple, and I work with a couple of people. Pe some, um, I'm, I was actually just speaking to um, one brother from America, who's based in Brazil, and but I want to show you different aspects. But I'm actually in the process of making it. I've been saying this for a while, um, but I'm not sure when I'm going to release it. But I probably will do maybe rather than having like a full length hour, an hour and a half, because again, that probably will bore people. I might have like short, fifteen minute, twenty minute things like on YouTube and then after maybe they maybe do a feature length documentary but that's something that I'm planning to do hopefully in the future and uh, but again it's just trying to find the time um, but it's something that I I think is probably more important maybe than the book because I think that probably will reach a wider audience but it's just a case of um, 
doing it kind of thing but yeah that's something that i plan to do hopefully um in terms of like voodoo and the traditional african religions that is stronger and growing in brazil than more than islam and one of the reasons um for that when i spoke to <coughs> the imam of um, the salvador mosque he said because the government are funding these organizations more than the muslims and something which um even tying in part, part to the first part of your question in terms of um trying to raise funds for mosques and things like that a lot of Brazilians, particularly from you could say like the lower social or poor economic backgrounds, obviously because they haven't got the funds obviously to build mosques and things like that. So that's why some of them are raising, uh, trying to raise funds and those are trying, trying, to, trying to build a mosque and things like that. But in, like I mentioned at the early part of my talk, I didn't see much, like you could say, Islamophobia or, again, I'm generalising, but um, there might be some isolated issues, but I didn't find much of that in speaking to the number of people that I spoke to. That Islam, I mean, the Brazilians are very tolerant, like I said, and uh, again, I'm generalising, and there isn't this kind of, if you're a Muslim, they're kind of just going to discriminate you against you, things like that. But one thing that, and this is something which not only the Muslims, but even black people that I was working with, is trying to empower people. And not only empower people by giving talks and presentations, but trying to create um, jobs or people can kind of be self-sufficient. And that's why I, wanted to, I, I use the example of the Colombo Palmeiras as an example, because this was a self-sufficient society. They wasn't relying on handouts. And I think that's important not only for the black community in Brazil, also for the Muslim community to try and be self-sustaining, financially self-sustaining. Because obviously, when you could, when you've got the money, you can look after yourself. Then you won't you won't need to, obviously, be asking for sustenance from the government, who really it's not in their interest for Islam to spread or for black people to prosper. So I think that's what was quite important. So just to try and understand that, um, it's important for whether it's the black community or Muslim community to to kind of work together and to, and to try and empower themselves rather than waiting on others to kind of. Um, give you handouts and that's something which again like I said learning from the, our past that's what they were able to do can I have one final question um, just a comment on the, the remark I said in my comment I congratulate you you did very well and I must listen to it and I'm sure I'm assuring you that the sky is the limit inshallah Allah will get you too and my remark is you are advised to start. I know where you started. You are just moving down to main Africa. Because when you say you should start and, and cast to Africa, you cannot you cannot do very well until you come to the West Africa. May Allah help you and guide you. Why I say this, I say you have a lot to talk. Eh? Father side, mother side. And you cannot talk about West Africa without talking about my village. That is what I want to do. Because it's, it's, the, it's the largest village in West Africa. Okay. Um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number of places Habib touches in the book about the phenomena of um, the more paler, more whiter you are, the more beautiful you are. There's a conception that not only is a plague in uh, in uh, in Brazil, but it's a plague across Africa and Asian countries. Uh, so you know, if you go to places like uh, Malaysia and uh, I'm sure in parts in Africa as well, or even Bangladesh, you have like creams that call fair and lovely to make you look um, more paler than you are. And uh, he talks about uh, people who want to go up the kind of social ladder, uh, trying to uh, bleaching the skin in the process so that they can become successful and uh, I just want to finish off of this because there's so much 
beauty in this room today. Um, and I quote from his book, uh, he uses a quote by Tupac Shakur, where he says, I say, I say the darker the flesh, the deeper the roots. And then fin to finish off on James Brown, he says, say it loud, I am black and proud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 <laughs>